verse 25, and be working our way through verse 36, just kind of give us a little reminder of what's been going on. We've been looking at Jesus traveling down to the Feast of Booths, which actually begins at the beginning of this chapter. Um, This is going to be one of the three times Jesus is going to come down to the Jerusalem. Next time is going to be the Feast of Dedication, then he'll go to Jerusalem his final time at the Passover Feast where he'll be crucified. And so the events leading up to what we're going to be looking at this morning begin with Jesus' brothers coming to him and telling him he should go down to this feast and he should make himself publicly known, which Jesus declines their invitation because he was all about the Father's time. He was all about the Father's will. He was all about bringing the Father glory. Ultimately, he does go down, but he goes down in secrecy or privately. And that is until the middle of the feast, which we looked at last week, where he comes and he makes himself publicly known before the people. As the people were unwilling to speak publicly about him within Jerusalem, Jesus comes to the temple and begins to teach in the middle of the festival. And this led to an interaction between him and the Jewish religious leaders who were wanting to kill him. And Jesus was aware of that. And he reveals their intentions to all who were listening at the temple that day and then begins a discussion with them concerning the law, concerning the Sabbath and circumcision and alluded to a miracle that he did the last time he was in Jerusalem where he healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And you can read of that in chapter 5 of John. And so we're jumping right into the middle of these events and I just kind of want to get our heads going about what's been taking place um, as Jesus continues this interaction with the crowd, and our focus this morning is faith over knowledge. And so let's read our passage, and we'll begin working our way through it. Again, we're in John chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 25. And the word of the Lord said, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray together before we get into this. Father, you are a great and mighty God. Nothing is impossible with you. And we thank you for allowing us to come into your presence, to open your word, to allow your spirit to speak to our hearts, to hear your voice, Lord. So give us ears to hear and a heart that's ready to accept what you're going to lay before us. 
We pray that you alone be glorified in this time as we walk through your word, be our shepherd and guide and lead us. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is not from you and not what you want to have said. We ask you to forgive us where we have failed you. And Lord, we want to continue to glorify you and we pray that your kingdom and will would be done in each and every heart and each and every life, each and every family that is here today. And Father, I pray especially if there's someone here this morning that has yet to put their faith in you for salvation and forgiveness of their sins, that today would be the day. Continue to be with us and we thank you that you are. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as mentioned, we're, we're picking up in the middle of this interaction where the crowds are gathered at the temple and they come to this crossroads because of the discussion that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders. In verse 25, we're told some of the people of Jerusalem, as reminder, we talked about last week, there are three groups gathered at the temple on this particular day. We have the religious leaders, we have people who lived, Jews who lived in Jerusalem, and then we have Jewish people who journeyed to Jerusalem much like Jesus did. The crowd of verse 25 is speaking of the people who actually lived in Jerusalem. And so what's interesting about their statement is not this, the man whom they seek to kill, is in making that statement, of course they're making it amongst themselves, they've contradicted what they have said in verses 19 and 20 when Jesus announced the intentions of the religious leaders and the people's like, who's trying to kill you? Most likely the statement of verse 20 is of those who journeyed to Jerusalem. They were unaware of what the religious leaders wanted to do with Jesus. But it's interesting that the people in the crowd who actually knew the intentions of what the religious leaders wanted to do in killing Jesus, they never said a word. And even here in verse 25, the implication is that they weren't saying or asking these questions publicly or out loud. It was amongst themselves. We pick that up from verse 32 with the word muttering. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. It's the same word used back in verse 12 of this particular chapter. It means that they were murmuring amongst themselves. They were whispering. They were talking, but not so that the leaders could hear them. And so though the crowds had these questions concerning Jesus, the problem is, is that they still had a fear of the Jews, which we're told that in verse 13. That'd be speaking of the religious leaders. So they're not going to speak openly about Jesus. They're not going to ask him the questions, even though they have a desire to know more about him and get an understanding. Same time, their question revealed that the religious, what the religious leaders wanted to do. It brings an interesting question for us this morning. Are we driven by faith or fear? Are we driven by faith or fear? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible also tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-control. So, what drives us to do the things we do, or what keeps us from doing the things we know we should do? The word faith in the Greek means trust. It means commitment. It carries the meaning of having this assurance and this confidence. Now, the word fear in the Greek carries the meaning of being a coward. What it comes down to is, are we confident in what God says in his word 
and what he tells us what we should be doing and we trust that, or are we a coward? Jesus came to the temple during the festival to give us the example. He had no fear of the religious leaders. He was not going to back down from them. Though the people were gathered at the festival, they were trapped in their fear. Jesus takes on the religious leaders head on, and he leaves them speechless. This leads the crowds to wonder, did the religious leaders know something about Jesus that they didn't? That's what they're talking about when, with their question, and when they speak of the authorities. It comes in verse 26. Matter of fact, when you look at this passage, verses 25 through 36, you're going to notice that there are a lot of questions that are being asked. There's six to be exact, and there's only one positive question, and that comes in verse 31. So not only were the religious leaders stumped, so were the crowds. They couldn't figure out who Jesus was, and they couldn't figure out what he was meaning when he said what he said. And this is where faith comes into play. See, faith isn't saying that we have to have it all figured out. We can come in faith with our questions. We can come with our doubts. We can come with our lack of understanding. But then faith plays in there because even with all our doubts and our questions and lack of understanding, we are going to still believe and we're going to trust in God's word. So living by faith means we're going to trust God's word no matter what is going on in our world. And we're going to trust God's word no matter what is going on in our lives or the life of our family. We're going to have faith in it that it's true. I believe David, in the Old Testament, who became king, I believe this is why he was told or called a man after God's own heart. If you read through the book of Psalms, which is largely written by David, not every psalm is written by him, but it's largely written by him, you're going to come across a lot of questions that David asks. A lot of crying out to God and pleading with God. Yet through all the questions and through all the doubts and all the lack of understanding, what happens with David is he always comes back to worshiping God. That no matter what is going on in his life, even if he didn't understand why God was allowing things to happen in his life, he always came back to this understanding, it doesn't matter where I am and the questions and the doubts that I have, God is still worthy. That's what living by faith means. We come before the Holy of Holies, we have our questions, we have our doubts, we have our misunderstandings, but through it all, by faith, we realize that God is still to be praised. Faith says we don't have to have it all figured out, but we're going to have a trust and a confidence that God does. As crowds begin to murmur about Jesus, they're stuck on the, this issue they're stuck on the issue of what they know about Jesus. Now, the word know is another key word within our passages this morning. Verses 25 through 31, it's mentioned seven times. It's widely believed that the Apostle John was writing this gospel led by the Holy Spirit to a group of individuals known as the Gnostics. Now, to be a Gnostic would be an individual who pursues after knowledge. Matter of fact, that is the utmost pursuit, just to gain more knowledge and more knowledge and so the word know in the Greek is actually the word we get Gnostic from in the English. In the opening of John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that word known means he has made him explained. That's what we get in the English from. And so John's understanding is that 
These people know Jesus, but they're seeking after a knowledge. They're not actually placing their faith in Jesus. And Jesus has come to the temple, and he's come to the people. God sent him so he can make God explained. And he can make God's word explained and known and understood. But the crowds are stuck. They have a knowledge about Jesus' origin. Yet at the same time, as they have this knowledge, they're noticing that the religious leaders are no longer debating back and forth with him. And so it brings up a question concerning Jesus. Could he actually be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one we've been waiting for? And there's some background to verse 27 that we need to understand. When the crowd said that they know where this man comes from, they're most likely speaking of a couple of things. First of all, they knew Jesus was well known that he came from Nazareth. When Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, fled from King Herod, when they returned back to the land, they settled in Nazareth. This is also an issue for Nathaniel. When Philip went to Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel was hesitant because he didn't think anything good could come out of Nazareth. Yet he still came to know Jesus and be one of his disciples. The crowds also knew that Jesus was mostly residing and teaching in the northern territory, uh, which would be Galilee. They were in the, he was typically in the city of Capernaum off the Sea of Galilee. And so one of the issues said that the Messiah came from the line of David, and he came from the city of Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is located in the southern territory in Judea. And Jesus has been up in the northern territory. And the other issue the, the Jewish people are having is a teaching that they would have been brought up with, which comes out of the Apocrypha. And what that teaching says is that the Messiah would spontaneously arrive and no one would know his whereabouts. Now, the Apocrypha is, has some history recorded of the Jewish people. And Jesus does, in fact, make a mention of it within the Gospels and his teachings. But the reason we don't have the, the Apocrypha in the evangelical, evangelical Bible is because it is not the voice of God. It records history. Mostly the 400 plus years between Malachi and the Gospels. And so the conundrum the crowd is having is, this is what we know. This is what we've been taught. Yet, could Jesus actually been the one we've been waiting for? And this is the battle of faith. Faith collides with fiction. This is what every individual has to battle with when it comes to coming to faith. This is what I know. This is what I've been taught, but is this actually truth? When Ethan was six-ish, I think that's about right, I'd, I'd have to find his uh, baptism certificate. I was tucking him in one night, and he had a bunk bed. And our, our thing we did when he was little, we don't do it anymore. He'd probably think it'd be weird if I did it today, since he's 17, going to be 18. But we tuck him in, we read a Bible story together. I'd sing, Jesus loves me, and he'd sing it with me, and then we'd pray together. And I remember that night as I was uh, closing the prayer, and I said, amen. I hear his sweet little boy voice, which he doesn't have anymore. <laughs> say, Daddy, I don't want to go to hell. And he said it with such emotion that the only thing that popped in my head that I could try to 
give him some satisfaction or reassurances. I first told him, well, I don't want you to go to hell either. And you know what? God doesn't want you to go to hell because God loves you very much. And then I asked this little boy who's tucked into bed, do you know God loves you? And he said, yes. And I said, do you know how or why or what God did to show his love? Well, he sent his son Jesus, and he died for my sins, and he rose again so that I could be forgiven and be given eternal life. And me and Ethan prayed again that night, and that was the night of his salvation. What happened is he had to come to a place in what he knew, even as a young child, to what he needed. And that was the faith in Jesus Christ. This crowd, there's some in them that had crossed the threshold. We're told that in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. It's interesting, we're told, I mean, you got God in the flesh, Jesus right there teaching, and it doesn't say everyone believed in him. But many believed in him. There's a lot of fiction out in our world today that are keeping people from crossing the threshold of faith. Statements like, well, you're a good person, that all religions go to heaven. All religions worship God, but they do it in their own way. The problem that with that statement or those statements, and there's others, is if you look at the world's religion, we're talking about Mormonism, Buddhism, Muslim, Islam, Universalism, Scientology, Wicca, and there's others, I'm sure. If you were to actually look at them and get a hold of some of their manuscripts, you're going to find that those manuscripts actually contradict what Jesus Christ said. And Gary brought one verse up that is a prime example during the children's church sermon. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we're sharing our faith, and I hope you're sharing your faith, we have to understand the spiritual battle that we're entering into and the roadblock that we'll sometimes run into of this preconceived notion of understanding that people have. Jesus, you got to love him. He does not dodge the issue. The word proclaimed there in verse 28 can be read as cried out or called out. It's a word that John frequently is led to use throughout the gospel. When Jesus is speaking to a crowd, it's meant to understand that a very important truth is about to be laid before you. And, of course, Jesus always made important truths, and, and everything he said was truthful. But when he says he proclaimed it means he was calling out with such a voice that all who were gathered would have to listen. He doesn't deny that they know where he came from. He doesn't deny that they know who he is. He doesn't beat around the bush, and then he drops this major truth which he wanted them to understand there in verse 28. And he says that he has not come of my own accord, and he who sent me is true, and him... You do not know. He's telling this group of Jewish people who prided themselves in knowing the one true God because God had given them the law. He's looking at this crowd. He's looking at the religious leaders. And he says, look, you may know who I am. You may know my background story and where I come from, but I have not come on my own authority. That's what the word accord means there in verse 28. I have not come of my own accord or my own authority. Then he goes on to say, rather, I have come in God's authority, and you don't know 
him. This would have been a huge slap in the face to the people that were listening and the religious leaders that were gathering today, but we can learn from this that our faith is in the authority of God. Here in about a week and a half on Wednesday nights, we're going to begin a, a Bible study in Genesis for the adults. And if we were to take the Bible, like any other book you may read, and we were to open it to the very first book in the very first chapter, and we were going to read it all the way through like a normal book, the first thing you would encounter in the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, is something God wants us to know and understand. For God, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right off the bat, God wants us to know his authority and to have faith in his sovereign and divine authority. And then what God does, and you got to love this, he goes on in chapter 1 and he goes on into chapter 2 of Genesis and he explains how he made everything in the beginning. And then he doesn't beat around the bush. He goes on to chapter 3 and explains what went wrong with everything, and why things are the way they were. So it wasn't a big bang. It wasn't a, an evolutional thing. It wasn't a spontaneous combustion. All things were created, and all things remain under God's divine authority. Then if we jump to the end of the Bible, we make our way, we get to the book of Revelation. What we see in Revelation is it doesn't matter our position in life. It doesn't matter our salary in life or what title we had in life or what education we were able to maintain or, or to earn in life. We read in Revelation that all people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues are going to be brought before God and they're going to be judged under his righteous authority. The reason we can rest assured in the authority of God is because nothing ever happens unless God allows it to happen. We may not understand it, we may not like it, but it all resides under his authority. That's why the heavenly creatures in heaven and the saints around the throne never cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And here's even better news. When it comes to faith and to the authority of God, if you are a child of God, meaning you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've placed your faith in him alone, then the Bible tells us that God authority resides over you, and the God of all authority is for you. He is not against you. And nothing can separate you from his love. Because he holds that authority. Coming back to our passage, Jesus delivers this verbal slap in the face in verse 28. We can now understand why the crowds get so upset. Why they responded the way they did in verse 30. And most likely wanted to seize him or arrest him and take him to the religious leaders so they could do what they wanted to do with Jesus, since it was now has become known. Yet again, we see the authority of God over Jesus 
In verse 3, it says, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus' arrest and crucifixion was going to be on God's time, not man's. Verses 30 and 31 lets us know that there's this division now within the crowd. One group of people want to arrest Jesus and seize him. The other group is coming to this believing faith. And their question in verse 31 could be paraphrased like this. What else does he have to do to prove that he is the Christ? With all that's going on, the Pharisees, verse 32, are hearing the crowd muttering. They're murmuring. They're whispering. They're talking, and they don't like what they're hearing. So when it says they sent the, chief, or the officers, in verse 32, that's the temple guards, to go and seize Jesus. These would have been Levites. They would have been the priests of the Old Testament. Now, now they're under the jurisdiction of the Pharisees and the high priests, and we don't really know what happens because they kind of just disappear from this thing going on. They don't show up again until verse 45, which we'll look at next week. It's believed, though, that they couldn't get to Jesus because the crowds were so divisive that they couldn't get through to him, but we know that it was God's authority, his hour had not come. There were some in the crowd who loved Jesus. There were some in the crowds who hated Jesus. That's not so much different from today. As all this commotion is taking place, again, you got to love Jesus. He does not back down. He doesn't try to hide. But we have to notice the shift Verse 25 through 31, the shift that happens in verses 32 through 36. The shift is that he focused the conversation not from where he came from, but in verse 32, he now shifts it to where he is going. He reminds the crowd that he is aware of the religious leader's intent again in verse 33. He reveals that he is aware that his time on earth is coming to an end, that that's going to take place in about six to seven months at the Passover feast. He then tells the people that he's going to return to the Father, and at that time, they're no longer going to be able to find him, and they no longer will be able to be where he is. The crowd's response in verses 35 and 36, they let us know that Jesus' comments In verses 33 and 34, they went right over their head. Because they bring up this question, you know, where is he going to go? Is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and he's going to teach the Greeks? Now, dispersion is speaking in a land of the Greeks where there were Jewish people that were scattered. Now, a righteous Jew would not go to that land because they believed that if they went to that land and they they came along those people, that they would become unclean. They would be cut off from worshiping God in the temple. And so we learned another thing about faith, that faith is in the eternal, not the physical. That's where the crowds were struggling to get. The crowds, for the most part, were caught up in the physical things of life, what they knew about Jesus, where they knew he was from, what... what they thought about Jesus and where he might be going. I think at times we can get caught up in that. Get more focused on money, vacation, retirement, our family, relationships, our future, what we do have or what we don't have. They're all important things in life. But God reveals to his word they're never meant to be the priority. Writer of Hebrews says we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so how do we look to Jesus? Well, we find him in his word. And secondly, we remember that this place is not our home. If you're a child of God, this isn't where we belong. Peter writes to the believers who were in dispersion. 
He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, which means aliens and strangers, meaning you don't belong here, guys, to abstain from the passions of the flesh or to abstain from the things of this world because they wage war against your soul. The crowds weren't entirely wrong about Jesus eventually making it into dispersion. He would go through the Holy Spirit and the disciples would take the gospel there. But he wanted them and us to know that he was going to return to the Father. And it was a place that the people in the crowds on this day and maybe someone here this morning will not go unless your faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Another understanding truth in the statement in verse 34. It says, where I am you cannot come. So Jesus ultimately knew that he was going to the cross. And even his 12 closest companions didn't fully understand it. I would venture that only one disciple actually had a a slight understanding of it. We're told only two disciples made it to where Jesus was having his illegal trial taken on that night. John was allowed to go in. Peter hung out in the courtyard, and he had his disaster night. We're told only one disciple, who was John, was at the cross when Jesus breathed his final breath. And the reason no one could go where Jesus was heading, because only Jesus can be the perfect atoning sacrifice. Only Jesus can die for the sins of the world, and only Jesus rose from the grave. That was something John and the rest of the disciples weren't understanding yet. Once Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, which the disciples watched in awe. And he sent him to the right hand of the Father, because only Jesus could sit there. That was something John and James' mother didn't understand. The beauty of the statement in Jesus returning to the Father is this. He's going to return one day for us all. I want to read this out of 1 Corinthians. It comes out of chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. It'll also be on the screen by the Apostle Paul. He said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory, O Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want to pose this final question this morning. Do you have that hope? That's why we preach the gospel and the good news so that people can come to a faith in Jesus Christ and they can have this hope that one day this mortal body, this perishable body, will be imperishable and immortal. And we will be with the Father and the heavenly creatures and we will join in unison, holy, 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 are you, Lord God Almighty. 
But do you have that hope? See, God created you for a relationship with him. He tells that right off the bat in his book. Problem is, sin came into the world. That's chapter 3 of Genesis. He tells us that right off in his book. And sin is what separates us from that relationship that we were created for. That is your purpose in life, is to be in a relationship with God. And like I mentioned, some people believe fiction, that I can just be a good person, I can do good things, and it doesn't work. We cannot work or earn our way back to God. But that's why Jesus Christ came, and that's why he was going to allow these religious leaders to kill him. Because he was going to die for the sins of the world. They were going to place him in a tomb, and he was going to rise three days later to show that he has the power over death, and he delivers the victory of life. And if you're here this morning, and you've yet to accept that gift of love, that gift of eternal life that God freely gives to all people, then I pray this morning that you would come down this aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I need eternal life. And I'm placing my faith in Christ alone. The Bible says when we do that and we believe it in our heart and we come down and we, make it, we confess it, we make it publicly known, the Bible says then we will be given eternal life. If you're here this morning and you're not sure, then I beg for you to come down. You can sit in the front row. We'll talk. We'll pray together. And I guarantee you every believer in this room will celebrate with you. I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, taking care of us, being so merciful to us. Thank you for being faithful even in times when we've been unfaithful. Lord, we thank you for the gift of eternal life that many in this room have already accepted. Knowing that one day we're going to be with you forever. But Lord, if there's someone here this morning that is yet to place their faith in your son Jesus Christ, I pray today would be the day of their salvation your spirit for your glory would speak to their heart right now. Forgive us, we failed you in any way, and we praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.